Good morning. I'd invite you to take a copy of God's Word. Hopefully you have one with you and turn to the book of Psalms. It's right in the middle of your Bible, if you weren't familiar with that. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got one as a gift for you. It's there in the pew in front of you. We'd love for you to take it. And I would love for you to go to page 500, no wait, 508 or 805? I don't know. Which one? I'm getting it switched up in my mind. Just go right to the middle of that book and it's, it'll be there. I, uh, I hope that you will. I hope you'll go along. Don't just be a, a passive participant in the sermon. Just sitting there, like looking at me, eyes glazed over. Look at the Bible. Look at me. Look back at the Bible. I dare you to take the Bible. Can you dare someone in church? I dare you to take the Bible and put your eyes on God's Word. Uh, you will get the most out of the sermon if you do that. Of course, you can take an app or anything like that. Psalm 1. I ask you to stand, and as you turn your way there, I'll just ask you this question. Don't you like a good plot twist? I, lo- I love a good plot twist. God writes the best stories because He writes history, and He writes the best plot twist. You think about Saul, the persecutor of the church, going about fighting against the gospel, and then surprise, God changes his life. No one saw that coming. Of course, the greatest plot twist of all is the resurrection of Christ, as we know, as he looks to be defeated in death and he's raised from the dead. But isn't it the case that everyone who's ever been converted has experienced some type of plot twist in their life? Um, You're living your life, you think you have life figured out, and then all of a sudden you encounter the gospel and you realize you have to have Christ. And maybe you're here today and you think, yeah, I didn't even want to come to church today. I just came for whatever reason, out of habit or whatever. Um, it's my hope and desire as you look at Psalm 1 that God would use this text to work a great plot twist in your own life and cause you uh, to be reflective of the person that's described here. Psalm 1. It's a great psalm. Let's read it now. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In October of 2007, I redeployed from Iraq after doing a long tour in Iraq. And you know, pretty much the only good thing about a long tour of deployment is getting tax-free pay. Tax-free pay and the little combat pay, which is actually... A joke of an amount, but nevertheless, it's more pay. Tax-free pay, combat pay, so you can collect a, a nice little piece of extra change. And what did I do with all that extra money? You might be asking, what did you do, Jay, with all that extra money? Well, I did what any young 20-something would do that has two kids under three and a beautiful young wife. I spent it all on a 1970 GTO. That's right. A 1970 GTO, the brightest yellow you've ever seen in your life. I'm talking a a real old school muscle car with actual metal, with real chrome, paint so clean that you could brush your teeth by looking at it, using it as a mirror. I spent all of it. It's the goat. You know it as the goat. And what makes the entire car? Why is that car the car that it is? 
It's because it has a, a 455 Pontiac big block engine in it, right? That's what that car is all about. It's, a, it, it's about that engine. I could start that engine, and within 50 meters, all of the car alarms start going off. Like, it hit that hard. It's not base. It's just the engine. It's beautiful piece of machinery, 500 horsepower, 800 foot-pounds of torque. But it's all the engine, car built around an engine. It's the central component. And, you know, when you think about our church, what is it, what is the thing that is the central component of the church? By which, if we don't have this, we really don't have anything but a nice-looking building. Um, Well, maybe not that nice. It's all right, though. We're thankful to have it. Uh, Maybe, what do you have? You have a collection of people. At best, you've got like a country club without this central thing. What is the central thing? Of course, the central thing of our church, and should be any church, is the centrality of the scriptures. The centrality of scriptures. You don't have that. You don't have the church. And we don't have a church. It's what our church is about. And so we're beginning a new series this summer. I'm looking forward to it. You'll get to hear from all of the other elders who don't get to preach regularly. They'll get to preach this summer. But we're working through the priorities and kind of the distinctives of our church. So, of course, we start with the centrality of scriptures. Obviously, we have to. And then we'll go um, from here, the clarity of the gospel, and we'll see the priority of preaching and uh, biblical Trinitarian worship, because we are, after all Christians, we believe in the Trinity. Biblical Trinitarian worship, we've got evangelism in there, we've got church membership in there, church discipline, it's all, it's all in there. Biblical theology, it's going to be a great summer, but it starts with the centrality of scriptures. It is a defining, it is maybe the defining thing about our church from which everything else comes out of. And if you were to visit our church website, you probably have done it, and you click on our beliefs, what's the very first thing you'll read? The very first thing, the statement on the scriptures. This is what it says. This is what our church says about the scriptures. We believe that the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, is God's holy word. It is in every word inspired without error in the original manuscripts, infallible and sufficient for life and doctrine. And we quote 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, which says... All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, rather than preach from 2 Timothy 3.16, I wanted to come to the Psalms, because I want to give you a little bit of a different take on why the Bible must be central, not only of our church, but why, for us, we feel that it is a benefit for you to make it central in your life as well. So today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Psalm. Three reasons, if you're taking notes, three reasons from Psalm 1 as to why Christ Fellowship Church is a church committed to the centrality of Scriptures. I'm going to walk verse by verse through Psalm 1. So it'd be beneficial if you had the Bible with you. Three reasons from Psalm 1 as to why Christ Fellowship Church is a church committed to the centrality of the Scriptures. The book of Psalms, many of you are familiar, but not everyone is familiar. It is a book of music for the people of God. It's God's own music book that he wrote over many years. I I think uh, many hundreds and hundreds of years. If you're new to the Bible, the Bible contains various genres of literature. Okay, so you've got narrative. You're probably most familiar with narrative scripture. You think of the stories of the Bible. Those are true stories. They're not just made up stories. They are stories about people's lives They're called narratives. Then there's the law, and you can go to the first five books of the Bible. You're going to encounter various laws that God gives to his people for their own benefit. 
Think of the law of Moses. Then there's prophecy. And you remember the book of Habakkuk. We just finished that. That's a book of prophecy. Then there's wisdom and proverbial sayings. You may be familiar with the book of Proverbs. Uh, We'll look at Ecclesiastes coming up in the fall. Then there's gospel narratives. Those are in particular narratives about Jesus. We have gospel narratives. Then you have the strange one. It seems to be everybody's kind of like almost favorite for some reason. Apocalyptic literature. You've got Revelation and you've got Daniel and this strange genre of literature. And then there's poetry. And that's the book of Psalms. It's a book of poetry or music. And what's interesting about Hebrew poetry and Psalms in particular is it'll take an idea. Instead of maybe being concerned with rhyme like we rhyme when we write poetry, it's going to give you an idea and it's going to layer it or unfold it in like three different ways, or it will give you an idea and give you the idea's opposite and unpack that several different ways. And that repetition and the contrast drives home the truth. And that's what we see in Psalm 1 today. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, this may be new for you, they are, they are like a unit. Okay, We have Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, but they go together. There are many reasons that we won't dive into as to why, I'll give you some, but they, are, they, are, they should be considered one unit by you. They were handpicked. It's important to introduce the Psalms. They're not the first Psalms written. Okay, they were handpicked as, as the, the, the Jewish people were compiling their songbook and taking these songs that they were already using and they sat down to put them together. They said, front load Psalm 1 and 2, and they're clearly a unit together. And they're compiled in this fashion because really Psalm 1 and 2, they contain the themes, the main themes that you'll encounter throughout the rest of the psalm. And really, the key themes of the entire Bible. Themes of righteousness and wickedness. Themes of happiness and misery. Themes of eternal life and judgment. It's all in Psalm 1 and 2. They're clearly linked together. I'll give you just one great, uh, easy explanation for you to see without getting to all the nitty-gritty by the word blessed. So look at the beginning of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. How does Psalm 2 end? Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So this is our psalm this morning. We'll deal. We'll, we'll visit maybe Psalm 2 a little at the end. But Psalm 1 we'll look at today. It presents to you two ways of living in God's world. Two ways of living in this world. Only two. There's only two ways to live in God's world. There is the way of the righteous, or those that are right with God in fellowship with Him, living according to His ways and enjoying Him, and there is the way of the wicked. And these two ways are contrasted against each other. And that's usually how people divide the psalm. Many people divide it, verse 1 to 3, describes the righteous person. And if you look back at your text, you'll see... 4 through 6 describes the wicked person. And the difference between the two is that the righteous loves God's word and cherishes God's word. The wicked loves the counsel of men. So the two ways of living are described and their result of those life is demonstrated. Another way to divide it, which some do, and I think is the way we will do it today, it's very beneficial, is to subdivide it that one comparison into three sub-comparisons. Okay, so you have the main comparison of the righteous and the wicked, but they're being compared in three spheres of life, I guess you could say. So one to two contrasts these two people in this current life. Verses three to four 
the fruit of their life. What is your life like if you live out your life like that? Verses 5 through 6, the eternal destinies of those who live out these two ways of living. Life now, the fruit of that life, eternal destinies, eternal life. So today we'll see three reasons from Psalm 1 as to why Christ Fellowship Church is a church committed to the centrality of Scripture. Now, what difference does this possibly make in your life to look at this psalm? Well, I think we should listen, you should listen, and pay close attention because everyone knows something is wrong with this world. Right? Everyone knows it. It's, it is so obvious in nearly every sphere of life. You cannot miss it unless you have your head in the sand. There is something very, very wrong with this world, and everyone wants it to be better. They want it to be right. They want to be happy. They want to live in peace. But that's not what we have. We have a world filled with violence. Violence permeates our society in every, in every sphere. And you cannot regulate away the violence. It can't be done. Not only that, there is massive confusion on what it means to be happy in a marriage and what even a marriage even is. There is massive confusion about what it means to be a man and a woman. What is even sex and what is its purpose and what is it for? Is it for temporary happiness and pleasure now or is it for something else? So we have crisis on every front. Marriage crisis, family crisis, gender crisis. We even have church crisis. Churches don't know what it is to be a church in this culture. Someone provides an answer to all of that in very simple terms by laying out two ways to live in God's world. And it does it by contrast. Two ways to live. It's it's timelessly relevant, so you ought to pay attention to it today because you have the option to live and to build your life according to one of these ways. Everyone is in one of these ways today, right now, whether you recognize it or not, and hopefully if you pay attention and, and you would draw your attention back to God's Word as I preach, you will see that. There's only one of two ways to live in the in this world. One way is God's way, the way of righteousness, which he says is blessed or contains blessedness. But to ignore that way of living and to live your life your way, even for temporary pleasure now, is to gain eternal misery. Two ways to live. The Bible is really, God is, God is really in these categories very, very black and white. We would like God to be, you know, gray. Human, human nature would be like, ah, that's too simple. But you've got these categories, God, you keep dropping us in. makes us a little uncomfortable. Jesus, he had the same categories. Except for he said it this way. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There are two ways to live in the world. Psalm 1 clearly lays it out. So listen to the psalm. That's my purpose today, is that you would hear God's word, listen to his voice, and that you would live in this way, the way of the righteous. If you're in the way of the wicked, my hope is that you would turn from that way and find life in Christ. And that you would build your life on the word of God. Everyone builds their life on something, right? What you believe is right in the world, pleasure, a job, career. There's only one thing to build your life on, and that's God's word. So three reasons from Psalm 1 why at Christ Fellowship Church we are committed to the centrality of scriptures. Okay, here's the first reason. You're going to discover it with me. 
Look at your Bible. Let's discover it. Take your finger. Take a pencil if you've got that. Put your finger on the word blessed. Blessed captures what the first two verses are all about. Or really the psalm in its entirety, but for verses 1 through 2, take your pencil, underline blessed. We're going to do this three times in the psalm, one in each section. The first one is blessed. Blessed, this word means to be happy. To be happy, that's the simple definition, or happiness. One translator translates it this way. Exceedingly happy is the man. Another translated this way. Oh, the happiness. Now, a single word for us that we don't use often, at least I don't, and might capture it better, is the word bliss. Bliss. No, bliss is perfect happiness. Perfect happiness. Not a word we use often. But this psalm is all about it. It's all about people in God's word having perfect happiness. Bliss. So this is the first reason. The first reason why we're about the centrality of scriptures is because we want you to be happy. That's a little different spin, right? A little spin on it. You think, like, hey, usually we go to 2 Timothy 3.16, we say the word is inerrant, therefore we must preach it. It must be the center of our church. But sometimes God gives us these little surprises, and, he say, and we say, hey, God wants me to be happy? And the answer is Yes. I mean, we don't think, people usually think about religion, think about God is, uh, God doesn't care if you're happy. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be blissful. He wants you to be perfectly happy in this life. You finish the sentence. Like everybody wants to be happy. There's no denying it. You finish the sentence for me. Parent says, you have a conversation with a parent about their kids. So what do they say? Oh, he's off at college. You know, he's struggling a lot. All I want is for my kids to be Come on. Happy. You wake up in the morning, you get your toothbrush, your toothpaste out, you look at yourself in the mirror, and you start brushing your teeth. What do you say to yourself? Today I would like to be miserable. (laughs) Nobody ever thinks that, right? You want, you go about the day, whether you know it or not, you're seeking pleasure. You're seeking happiness. The question is, what are you seeking to find happiness in? You want to be happy. You're wired. You can't help it. God has hardwired you for pleasure and for happiness. And the problem is, as we'll see, is you often are seeking it in the wrong things. But you can't help it. You seek it. You seek happiness out. It's just what you do naturally when you wake up. We're the country of happiness. You ever think about our country? We're the country founded on what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When the Declaration of Independence was drafted in July 4th, 1776, they said, these are inalienable rights given to us by our Creator. One of them is to pursue happiness. Pretty insightful, I think. Now, today God tells you how to pursue and how to find real happiness. Blessed is the man. Singular form. We'll come back to it later. Singular form. Blessed is the man. God says, I'm going to show you what a human being looks like, what you should try to emulate so that you might be happy. And he does it by giving you three negatives and one positive. And you can see that in in this text clearly. God shows you there are two ways to live. I'm going to show you the way of happiness, the way of the righteous, happy man. I'm going to show you his way by showing you three negatives and one positive about this man. So first, the negatives, if you look back at the text. Blessed is the man who walks not 
in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So three negatives. The first negative. The happy man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So if you want to be happy in life, here's the thing you don't do. What does it mean to be wicked? Okay, we ask that, like, what does God mean? Don't, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked who are the wicked. The wicked in the Psalms stands for those who do not know God, who don't have a relationship with God. Uh, you might would call them an unbeliever, uh, though they may would claim to believe in gods or a god or God, uh, but they don't, they don't have a relationship with the God of the Bible, the one true and living God. They're the wicked. They're outside of covenant relationship with God. There's the righteous and the wicked. God divides humanity according to these two ways. Those who are in relationship with him, a covenant relationship with him, and those who are outside of it. Those outside here are called the wicked. Jesus has a different term. In the New Testament, because we always think, well, hey, Jesus is different, right? We've got to love like Jesus. He's different. That's Old Testament stuff. Jesus in the New Testament, he says things like this. In John 15, 18 through 19, here's his categories. If the world hates you, who's he talking to? talking to his disciples, and through the text, he's talking to us. If you're a Christian, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the world, you can see, is synonymous with the wicked. You, the disciples, would be synonymous if you're in Christ with the righteous. They are non-believers. Right? So what is the text telling us? The man who is blessed, who has happiness in this life, does not listen to the counsel of those who are non-believers or non-Christians. What counsel could they give you? Right? God says the happy man doesn't listen to their voice, doesn't listen to them. See, you're living in a world that is constantly influencing your mind. And the counsel of the wicked is more than just your friends and your family that aren't Christians that want to speak into your life and tell you how to live your life and tell you how to run your life. It's everything. Like, you're bombarded with it through whatever you read. If you read books, it's hitting you with a particular worldview. Many times it's opposite of God's world. If you're scrolling through TikTok and you, you hear these influencers, the things they are spouting about any number of things, all of that is like a battle. And the mind is the battlefield. And God says the happy man does not listen to the counsel of those who are not in covenant relationship with me. You don't listen to them. The world outside of Christ has nothing good to inform your life about. And now we're not talking about, hey, I need heart surgery and my doctor's a non-believer because I, I don't really care. I'm going to find the best heart surgeon, believer or not, to do. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the things of living life out in God's world, right? How do you live in God's world according to God's ways. And the world has a different standard for everything under the sun. If you want to be happy, what does the world tell you? Be true to yourself. That's the counsel of the wicked. You want to be happy, just be true to yourself. Be true to who you are. You'll be happy. You want to be happy, then go for pleasure now. No delayed gratification. Whatever will bring you happiness and joy or a thrill or excitement, you go for it now. You only get one life to live, right? Go for it now. Seek pleasure now. Fulfillment now. Excitement now. You know, our kids are bombarded with this. 
have two teenagers. And what are they bombarded with by their non-believing friends? All the time. What do they always hit them with? My kids, they don't really even care anyway. But what are they bombarded with? Oh, you're virgin still. Eh, you know, um, don't you know what you're missing out on? You know how great this is? Like, you know what you're missing out on? It's so exhilarating. It's so fun. It's so exciting. You're, you're, it's ridiculous that you're not doing this. Right? That's what they tell them. But the world doesn't tell them all of the negative consequences that come with that. Like all of the, all of the, 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 uh, the trust problems. All, and then even all of the guilt that they never talk about, which everyone has because God's written his law in our heart. The guilt before God. Never speak that. It's only pleasure now. Happiness now. And these folks have forsaken God's greater blessedness. We talk about this all the time with them. Delayed gratification now. Blessedness that you can never even fathom later. In a biblical marriage, I would give anything, and I'm just praying my kids get to enjoy the type of marriage that I've had with my wife. Blessedness is the only way to describe it. And I've had this conversation with many non-believers who, you know, even as adults in the army, they like to be like, hey, you've only been with one woman? Like, that's, that's crazy. Like, I've been, I've, uh, ten, 10 this year for me. 10 this year for me. It's exciting. It's fun. Whatever. And I'm like, dude, you have no idea what pleasure is. You have no idea what blessedness is. You're living your life according to God's way. I have a greater blessedness that you can never even fathom. But that is hard to communicate. People can't see it when they're in it. And while we're talking about marriage, let's talk about marriage for a moment. Today, people change marriages like most people change jobs, right? We say, um, I'm not fulfilled in this job anymore. It's, not, it's just not doing it for me. There's not excitement. There's not satisfaction in this job. So people just change jobs all the time. Same thing with marriage today. I, you know, it, it was nice at first. It was exhilarating. We had chemistry. You know, t- time went on, and so people just change marriages today. And that's the counsel you'll get from non-believing friends. They'll tell you that. They say, oh, you're not as happy in your marriage as you were. Time to get a new one, right? Men do it all the time. Men do it all the time. I learned something new this week from my wife. Men hit 40. We were talking about it. Angie's she's 40. I think 41. I don't, I don't even know how old she is. It doesn't matter to me when you're going to be married forever. Who cares? And she's like, you going to trade me in for two 20s? I was like, what are you talking about? I never even heard that. You guys heard that before? Wife turns 40, trade her in for two 20s? I'm like, what is that? I'm like, what is that? That's crazy. That's what, that's what the world will tell you to do, right? Your wife gets older. Like, obviously, she's older. She's had kids for you and, you know. And she's not what she was when she was 20, right? At least, but it doesn't matter because life is even better. But, you know, you're at the break room, right? You're eating lunch at work. And you're like, man, my wife just doesn't do it for me anymore. Because, you know, she's older. I'm still young. It's always, the guy's always young, even though he's got a big beer gut, right? He's got a big beer gut. He's going bald, but he thinks he's a stud still. My wife just doesn't do it for me anymore. Um, she's not, she doesn't blow my socks off. We used to have this great chemistry. Every time I look at her, she'd just blow my socks off. And, and uh, she's old. She's older now, you know. It's, there's just no chemistry there. And then the non-believer friends go, well, what are you married to her for? You deserve to be happy. Leave her. Who cares? Who cares about your kids? Who cares about your wife? Go get you a younger wife. Be happy. You get one life, man. You deserve it. 
Right? That's the counsel of the wicked. Same goes for women. Same goes for women. Same type of stuff in marriage. Marriage is difficult. Marriage gets difficult. Your husband isn't the man he used to be. Maybe he deploys. Maybe your husband deploys. He comes back from a deployment. He's not the same man he left. He's not the same man. He's emotionally distant. He's got issues. You may even say he's a little mean. He has a temper problem now. He's neglectful of you and of the children. Um, The world would say he is abusive to you in his neglect and even maybe his verbal abuse. What does the world tell you? Abandon him. Leave him. When he needs you the most. You made an oath to him. He needs you more than anyone else in this world to pull him out of that dark place. And women here in this town do it all the time. They'll leave their husbands like he's nothing. It's the way of the wicked and will only lead to sorrow. But God has a better way. God has a better way, the way of blessedness. I think about in marriage, things like this. I think about my grandma. My, my grandpa returned from World War II. He wasn't a good man. He was a good husband by any stretch of the words. He's neglectful of her, neglectful of my mother. He didn't even tell my mother he loved her till she was in college. First person we ever saw him kiss on the mouth was Brooke when she was three years old. And the world would tell my grandma, leave him. He's not worth it, what you're enduring. But you know what? My grandma listened to the word of God. It was her delight. And through her faithfulness, my grandpa changed. Had she listened to to the world, I wouldn't even be alive. I wouldn't even be alive today. I'm so glad she listened to the word instead of the world. This is the counsel of the wicked. And they have something for you in every way, every capacity. It's a, hey, you go to check out, get checked out, right? What do they have? There's newspapers there. And what is it telling you? It's the world's wisdom. It's trying to influence you. Don't listen to it. Do not listen to the counsel of the wicked. You will not find happiness there. Listen to God's word and find happiness. Well, second, the second negative that we see here. He doesn't walk, the righteous man doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but nor does he stand in the way of sinners. So there's kind of a progression going here from walking to standing to sitting. Uh, sinners here is someone who is willfully breaking God's law. They, they don't care. God's got a way of living in this world. They don't care what it is, right? God has given in his word clear instruction on how to live in this world. Worship, think just the Ten Commandments. Relationship with God, worship. How to live in this world with God. Honor integrity, how to live with your spouse, violence, murder, all of these things, human sexuality, coveting. God gives all these things. And the sinful person doesn't care about any of those because they just live their life however they want. They make the rules up as they go. This is what a sinner is. They don't care about God's rules. A sinner is a breaker of God's law. And the one who is happy, the happy righteous man, doesn't doesn't get in there. He doesn't start to stand in their way. First, you're listening, right? You see how it goes. You're listening to the council, and you're like, "Oh, it's, I guess that's not that bad of an idea." Next thing you know, you're standing. You're standing there with them, in their company, and now they're influencing the way you think about everything. So now you're like, you know what? You're you're right. You know, the church is behind. The church is on the wrong side of history. After all, like, you know, we see how the world has changed and human sexuality 
And so now I'll keep Christianity. I'll just modify it a little bit, despite what God's word says. But what happens? Uh, that's step two. What's step three? You're now sitting in the seat of scoffers. So the righteous man who is a happy man, he doesn't, he doesn't walk with them. He doesn't stand with them. He doesn't sit with them because that's where it goes. Now you're in the company of these people, the scoffers. A scoffer is like someone who is openly hostile, right? So before you can see it's just talking about it. Then it's like, I would just break God's law, whatever. But now it's open hostility. God is wrong. They scoff and they mock at God. That's what a scoffer is. And there is this progression. And then you can, I'm sure you can see, if you think about the person, because I know everyone knows it, who has the term today is deconstructed, who has left the faith, what pattern did they follow? They followed this pattern. This is the pattern they followed as they left the faith. The righteous, happy man, however, does not even start down the path. Because he's not listening to the counsel of the wicked. His, his, li- his, his life is marked by something different. So now the positive. That's three negatives. Now the positive. The righteous happy man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Delight, it communicates this idea of pleasure. That he loves God's word. The law, what does that mean? Uh, well, you ought not to think of it as just the laws like Moses gives. The law was synonymous with the first five books of the Bible at this time. And then as the Old Testament was compiled, that just stands for scriptures. So the righteous man takes pleasure and delight in God's scripture. And what do we have today? We have even more. We have the Old and New Testament. So for us, as we read it, it stands for this, the Bible, the whole Bible. This book, according to someone, is... A gateway to happiness. You may have never thought of it that way. This is a gateway to happiness. People think the Bible is a killjoy. But what's the reality, right? They think, oh, the Bible. It's just filled with heady stuff. It's filled with theology. It's filled with difficult doctrines and things. It's filled with rules. It's a killjoy. But what's the reality? It's, It's not meant to kill your joy. It's meant to amplify it. To give you real joy and real pleasure. And so the righteous man, he reads this. He reads the scriptures. He thinks about what he reads. And he's meditating on it day and night. As he walks, as he gets up, he's thinking about God's word. How it applies to his life. And the words that's communicated here in meditate has the kind of idea of almost like mumbling. Like if you saw some guy just like kind of mumbling to himself. But he's not mumbling. He's walking around reciting God's word in his mind. So the happy man... Loves the scriptures. It's a gateway to happiness. He doesn't take counsel from the wicked. He takes counsel from God. Do you see how it's being contrasted? The righteous happy man, he walks with God as he meditates. He stands with God as he recites his word. And he sits down in the word and absorbs the truth of God. He loves God's word. So if you want to be happy today, you must build your life on God's Word. It's, that, it's really that simple. Build your life on God's Word. If you really want your kids to be happy, if you say, all I want is for my kids to be happy, you must teach them the Scriptures. And you must teach them to love God's Word. You must listen and hear God's voice from the Scriptures. Take counsel from the Lord. Shun the counsel of the wicked. 
So that's the first, that's the first reason why we are we take as the scriptures the central component of our church. The first reason is we want you to be happy in this life. Happiness can be found in this life. And it's found in God's word. The second. So what's the second reason? At Christ Fellowship Church, we want your life to matter. We want your life to matter. Take your finger. Go back to the text. Okay? Take it down to to verse 3. Because now we're in verse 3 and 4. We want your life to matter. And I want you to circle the word fruit. Because that's what these verses are about. They're about bearing fruit as a result of following these ways. These two ways to live. The comparison continues. The happy, righteous man, he's like a tree. Uh, The wicked, the way of the wicked, the wicked man, he's like chaff. You might not be familiar with that. I'll explain it in a bit. What are the results of living in these ways? Two illustrations that God gives to you to understand it. The result of living in these ways, or does your life even matter at all? It doesn't matter. Everyone wants their life to matter. Right? You don't want to say at the end of your life, everything I did was for no reason. I could have not even been born. You want to say at the end of your life, my life did matter. I left a legacy. I'm going to influence generations from here on out. Even my own children and hopefully their children. Everyone wants their life to count and to matter. Verse 3, the righteous happy man is described as a tree. That's the first picture that God gives us. It's like a tree that's planted by streams of water. It's a great picture for those who would be living in the Middle East. They can see it clearly, but we can see it even now. But in this part of the country, you had you know streams that would the ra- couple rainy seasons would come. It's an arid place. You know, it, other than when the springtime comes, a lot of time it's very deserty. If you've ever been you know out to the Middle East, you know what I'm talking about. But the trees that are planted by streams, they have life. Right? Even if there's no rains, the streams that come by, there's water way down deep in the ground. They're able to draw continuously, and they always bear fruit in season. It's a picture of life and of bearing fruit and of stability and of long-term growth. And that's the picture of the righteous man. The righteous man who loves God's word is like a tree planted and is drawing. And, of course, you can see what is the stream which is being drawn from. It's God's Word. God's Word is nourishing this man so that in season he bears fruit. The righteous man builds his life on God's Word and he draws life from the water of life. And life is infused to him, he bears fruit. A tree which bears fruit has deep roots and can survive various seasons. This is why I think it's important we understand the seasons that are here that are mentioned, bearing fruit in season. You've seen it, right? You, you've seen how trees, even in our own part of the country, that have deep roots can survive even the worst storms. Even a tornado could come by and even strip off half of the branches off a tree, and the tree looks dead. But what happens? The springtime comes around, tree is still growing. Leaves start to come, new branches. Or maybe in the wintertime. Wintertime comes, and an incredible ice storm hits like we have every four years or so. And it looks like everything's dead. The trees are all going to die. But what do the trees that, ha- that have had longevity down into the ground with deep roots, they come back. They survive. God uses the picture of a tree. And it's a, it's a great picture. 
that God has given us. Because we ought to know that the Christian life is not a sprint. Right? This is the appeal of the world. They want you. The way of the wicked is that life is a sprint. And they want you to get pleasure now. Chase happiness now, excitement now. But the way of the righteous is like a tree. And what does a tree do? It grows slowly over time. Right? It's, like, it's like a marathon. Or it's like a tree that grows slowly. And we know that we have seasons in life as a Christian. And we have great seasons of bearing fruit. But we all have, have seasons in, the, in this life. This is the way of the world. We live in a fallen world. We have seasons of great progress in the Christian life. Great fruit. We have seasons of great setbacks even. Setbacks. Pain. Seasons of pain. Seasons of great exhilaration and joy. Seasons of suffering. Seasons of trauma. Even perhaps a season of depression. But what is the tree that is planted and is sucking the life from the Word of God? That tree will bear fruit in time and in season. And that's the life that we are to pursue. We're here for the long haul. We will forsake pleasure in momentary happiness, which isn't real happiness, now for real blessedness as God causes the Word to live in our life and to bear fruit in our life. That's the picture. Jesus says in the New Testament, He picks up on this life-giving and fruit illustration. He makes it His own when He gives the illustration of the vine and the branches. And He says this in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Me you can do nothing. So we are to be in Christ, sunk into Him, abiding in Him. And just as the righteous man draws life from the Word of God, we draw life from the Word of God incarnate. He's our life. The Scriptures are His Scriptures. They're about Him. And as we're in Him, we bear fruit. The happy, righteous man is pictured as a tree. Jesus also has another metaphor. You probably have heard it um, before. And it's all about the man who is rooted in the Word of God. It's the picture of a house, of people that build a house. And he says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it, had founded, it was founded on the rock. Everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Life, true blessedness, true happiness, true stability for the long haul is found rooted in the, in the word of God. And as we see, Jesus expounds it. These are his words and his teachings. And as we come to the New Testament, we have many more of Jesus explaining how to how to have a stable life built upon Him, the foundation of His Word. Back to Psalm 1. Jesus says a house crashes. If, if, you, if you listen to God's Word and you don't do it and you build your life on something else, Jesus says your life's going to crash. The psalmist says it a different way. The psalmist says you are like chaff that the wind blows away. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so. It's a little stronger in Hebrew. It literally is a double negative. It says... The wicked are not so, no, not so. What does that mean? It means everything we just talked about, about the righteous person, does not apply to the wicked person. 
The righteous person listens to God's word. He doesn't listen to the counsel of the wicked. He has true blessedness. He experiences bliss in his life, true happiness. His life counts. It bears fruit. It influences his children. At the end of your life, people will say that person lived for God. Their life mattered. Not so the wicked. Their life was worthless. It counted for nothing. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. What is that? You probably don't know. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Chaff, not something we, a term we use a lot. So what chaff is, is the process of, of agriculture in this day was to chop down, you know, your barley or your wheat, take it, collect it all up in big bushels, take it to a threshing floor. And this floor would be elevated up on a hill. There'd be a flat plain, but it'd be a place where the wind could sweep across, like regularly. So you take your big bush, bushels up there. You take your winnowing fork in hand, which God also has illustrations using winnowing forks for another time. And you take the winnowing fork in hand and you throw it up in the air. You throw all that up in there then you smack it down and then a little grain explosion. And all the good grain falls to the ground, that which you can eat and use that's useful, falls into a pile on the ground, wheat kernel, barley kernel. The wind blows away all of the the worthless chaff, the husk, the stuff that's... Not worth anything. Worth nothing but to be burned. Throw it up in the air. Hit it. Wind blows it away. It doesn't matter whether it was ever here or not because it's worthless. It bears no fruit. There's no fruit in it, in the chaff. And that's what God says the wicked are like. They may have pleasure. They may do things here and there and be temporarily happy. But the end result of, 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 of a non-believer's life, even if you were to actually drill down with them and say, ah, whatever, God exists, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, probably not. What does it matter if you were ever here or not? You live and you die. Your kids live and they die, and your grandkids, they'll live and they'll die, and the world will go on. Eventually, the world will just stop. The sun will explode, who knows, and everything dies. But what does it even matter? Nobody lives like that, though, right? The wicked like to live like their life matters. The Bible says your life doesn't matter. And I'm not saying it doesn't matter to like the people that are close to you. Like they care about you, obviously. Your life matters to them. But the idea is your life has no eternal significance. It doesn't matter for eternity. It doesn't matter to God. It's a hard truth. It's very hard to even tell you that. But it is a truth that is necessary. To awaken you from this reality. There's a great little poem. Now I can't remember who it's by. But I love it. It says, uh, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that really summarizes what we see here in these verses in Psalm 3 and 4. And we want your life to matter. We want your life to matter. So for us at this church, we have the centrality of the scriptures. We want your life to matter eternally. We want you to bear fruit in this life. We want people to say of you that you are blessed, even non-believers. We want them to look at your life and say, I, I don't know all this, but that person's made my life better. I can't explain it to you. I don't know how, but this person makes my life better. We want you to leave a legacy to your children to influence generations from here on out as you invest the gospel in your children. 
And so the scriptures are central to us. Jesus says it this way again in John 15, 7 through 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. That's what it's all about. It's about glorifying God in this life. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We want you to bear fruit. We want your life to count. We want your life to glorify God. We want people to call you blessed. We want your life to bless other people. So that's why, that's the reason number two. There's two ways to live. One's happy, the happy righteous man that bears fruit. The other, chaff, whose life is meaningless. And at Christ Fellowship Church, we want you to be happy. We want you to be happy, and we want your life to matter. Reason three. At Christ Fellowship Church, we want you to be eternally happy. Eternally happy. This is verses 5 and 6. So take your finger back to the Bible and take it. Take your pencil. Underline the word judgment. Because that's what 5 and 6 are about. It's about eternal destinies. Happiness in this life. The fruit of this life. Eternal life. You see the flow of the song? There are two ways to live. The righteous and the unrighteous. Righteous and the wicked. There's happiness, unhappiness. There's fruit, non-fruit. And then there's eternal outcomes of those lives. And we want you to be eternally happy. We want your happiness that you have here in Christ. We want you to be eternally blissful in Him. And the wicked are not so. Now, you might think, if you were to look around the world, and that's why I'm grateful for these verses, you might look around the world and you might see something that seems contrary to everything I've already just said to you. It's something that believers in this world have recognized for thousands of years and they've written about it. This is what you might have recognized. You might observe that there are people in this world that are wicked, they live their life their own way, and they seem to be genuinely happy. Right? Their life is prosperous. Maybe they have a great job. Right? Maybe they have a lot of money. They go on all these vacations. You don't go on any. Right? They have everything that you think that the world tells you that you need to be happy. They, they seem to be genuinely happy. And those people can live their whole life. And all they do is flourish and then they die. And you say, this, I don't, I don't make, this doesn't make sense to me. Because I also see people who live their whole life for Jesus. And all their life is one hardship after the other. Sickness. Pain. Death. Hardship. And you say, this seems to be a conflict. Well, you're not the first person to recognize that, <laughs> right? Believe it or not. Jeremiah, the prophet, writes about it. Jeremiah 12.1. There are numerous places, but here are a few. He says to God, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Remember, you can complain to God, according to the Bible. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are tre- treacherous thrive? Ecclesiastes 7.15, which will be in Ecclesiastes this fall. The teacher says this, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You might see that. You might observe that. You might look at the wicked prosper and you say, I don't see it. There's a conflict here. Well, verse 5 and 6 brings it all together for us with ultimate truths. 
It brings us back to the eternal nature of things, the eternal reality of things. This life is temporary. It's but a, a flash, and it's gone. Eternity is forever. It's, you can't even fathom the length of eternity. This life is momentary, and it's appointed for you to live one time. You die once, and then comes the judgment. This is Hebrews 9.27. There is a coming judgment for everyone. Everyone will stand before God. Not in the way that stand is used here. Everyone will appear. There's a better word for you. Everyone will appear before God, before this judge, and be judged. The wicked will not stand before God. They will be blown away like chaff. That's the picture. So no matter what the wicked has in this life, if he has temporary happiness and riches and pleasure, he'll stand before God and God's wrath will destroy him. It will expose him for who he is. And he will experience eternal sorrow. As he is cast away from the Lord and he says, Away from me, I never knew you. Worker of lawlessness. The righteous are not like that. The righteous... The Lord knows their way. There's a company of righteous in the plural here now. A company of righteous. The wicked are not standing in the company of the righteous, but the righteous, it, it, the opposite is true. We stand before God at the judgment. We are not blown away. There's two ways to live in the world. Only two. There's the way of the righteous, which doesn't guarantee you the things the world offers you that tells you you need to be happy. The way of the righteous guarantees you eternal blessedness. And this takes us back to the meaning of the word blessed. Blessed is the man. What does that mean? It's more than just happiness that the world can tell you about. Blessedness comes from who? We sing the song, the song. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. The blessed man is blessed by God. The blessed man has a gift given to him, the gift of eternal joy and eternal happiness. It's a blessedness which transcends out of this life into the next life. It's true blessedness. Then there's the way of the wicked. Who are blown away like, trap, uh, like, like chaff. Only two ways to live. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Eternal blessedness. It's imperative that we have the centrality of the scriptures at this church because we want everyone to experience eternal happiness. We want you eternally happy. And that's the third reason. So today we've been looking at three reasons from Psalm 1 as to why the scriptures are central at our church and you should make them central in your life. We want you to be happy. We want your life to count. Who doesn't? And we want you to be eternally happy. Do you like movie plot twists? I do. I like movie plot twists. I like, I like movies that have a big plot twist that you can't, you can't see coming. There's just no way to see it coming. And then it hits, and you're like, that was a good movie. You might not like this movie, but I like this movie. It'll illustrate it. It's the movie Interstellar. You guys know the movie Interstellar? Maybe, maybe not. Okay, it's about um, Matthew McConaughey plays a guy named Cooper. He's a cosmonaut, 
and the earth is dying. The earth is going to end, right? And so these cosmonauts, they go into space, deep space, and they're looking for a planet that we can, that we can occupy, a new planet because the earth is dying. He leaves. He's got a little girl, his little girl, Murph. And um, the problem that exists on earth while they're out looking is that they don't have a way to get everybody off of earth, so they need, they're like working on this math equation. How could you mass lift huge spaceships off of the earth? So his little, da- little daughter grows up while he's in deep space. Because, you know, you go into deep space and time starts to get weird, right? So he's like not aging and she's aging, right? And then all of a sudden, as we get closer to the end of the movie, Murph has these strange encounters in, in, uh, around this bookcase in her house. And it's almost like there's this ghost that's helping her along. And then wouldn't you know it? She cracks the code and she figures out this mysterious uh, equation to save Earth and get everybody off. And then the plot twist. Her dad was the one who was helping her. But he's in deep space and he's like in a wormhole. So he's like in between time, space, reality. And he's like nudging things along, right? And it's, I think it's pretty awesome. It's a plot twist. You can't see it coming. Well, our text today contains a massive plot twist, and you probably didn't see it coming. I want to help you get at the plot twist by asking a couple of questions, very important questions. Number one, have you ever met this man? Have you ever met a single person, man or woman? I'll throw it out there, man or woman. Have you ever met a single person in this world that that describes? Be honest. No, you haven't. Does this describe you? Does it describe you? This is the law of the Lord your delight. You might say yes, but do you meditate on it day and night all the time? Uh, No, probably not. Have you ever taken the counsel of the wicked? I am willing to bet yes. Right? They've influenced your mind and the way you think about things. I've never met this man. I'm not this man. Or woman, you're not this man or woman. It's in the singular, who's this man or woman? There's our first clue. There's a plot twist coming. Second clue, right? It's all in the singular. Who, who is this? This man. It's as if God is giving us a prototype. Because he is, right? He's giving us a prototype of what a faithful, righteous man looks like. And no one's ever done it. Third clue. And hopefully this one will make it click. Psalm 1 and 2 are a unit, as I told you before. Psalm 1 and 2, they go together. Psalm 1 describes the blessed man whose delight is the law of the Lord. You're introduced to this man. Psalm 2 introduces you to a man who's the Messiah. The king. The coming king. Who's called the son who the nations must bow down and worship and kiss, or they'll be blown away like chaff. And you're starting to see it now. You're starting to see the plot twist emerge. Someone is about Jesus Christ. Someone's not about you, it's not about me. Someone is about Jesus Christ. The only man who has ever lived 
who could be called the righteous man, who never took counsel from the wicked, who delighted in the law of the Lord, who obeyed him perfectly, who meditated on his law day and night as God commands his kings. He commands his kings to write the law and to meditate on the day on day and night. No king ever did it. It's picturing a coming king, the blessed man, the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. In everything he did and does, he prospers. That can't be said of you and I. Everything he ever did, he prospered. Jesus was incarnate. Right? He is God in the flesh, and he lived a perfect human life. None of us ever have. So we're worthy of judgment. And Christ is not worthy of judgment because he meditated on the law day and night. It was his delight, and he lived it out perfect. Loving God, loving his neighbor as himself, the perfect man. Everything he did, he prospers. He was sent here not just to live for us. He was sent here to die on our behalf. Christ died for sinners. He died for the wicked. The people mentioned here who will be blown away like chaff. Christ died for their sins and he prospered in it. What he did, he accomplished. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He conquered death. In all that he has done, he prospers. And he saves all who will take refuge in him. The company of the righteous, which we read about in this psalm, are only a company of the righteous because they've taken refuge in this blessed man. You see how it works? And now if we, we may call ourselves righteous, the company of the righteous, but it is not our righteousness, it's the righteousness of this blessed man. As we are in Christ, now what is said of Christ can be true of us. We can delight in the law of the Lord. Where before, people, before God has come to us and changed us through the gospel, right? We were not seeking after God. We weren't, forget delighting in his law. We weren't even looking for it. We didn't care about what God said, how to live in this world. At least I knew I, I did it. But when we are transformed by the power of the gospel, what is said of Christ now becomes true of us. We might delight in the law of the Lord. We might meditate on it day and night. That's the beauty of this passage. But don't mistake, don't, don't mistake in this and say, hey, this is just about Christ. Because it's more than that. It's about now those that are in Christ by faith. And now that we are in Christ by faith, we can be truly happy. We are blessed by God. God's blessing has come upon us in Christ where we become this blessed man and woman. We might find true happiness, true bliss, not in the ways of the world, but in following Christ, loving his word. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, you're in one of these two ways. Like, you're in it. God tells us you're in it. I, you know, we, there are many here who are not in this other way anymore. We've been transplanted like a tree that is taken from this place bearing no fruit, dug up by God and planted in Christ. And we draw from him life. And that's our invitation to you. You're in one of these two ways. If you're in this other way, inventing the rules as they go along, searching for happiness, you can't help it. Like I said, you're going to get up and brush your teeth and you're not going to say to yourself, I want to be miserable today. You're going to say, I want to be happy. And now I'm telling you how to be happy. Here's how you be eternally happy. Turn from your way of living in this world, which the Bible calls sin. Forsake it. Repent of it all. 
Christ will take it and he'll throw it into the depths of the sea and not count it against you. He'll count all of Christ's perfection and he'll give it to you and he'll save you and make you his own. It's the best gift anyone could ever get. And we pray today, it's our prayer, that that would be you. We want you to be eternally happy in Christ. If you want to talk more about how to become a Christian, what does it mean to follow Christ, please, please see me after the service. You can talk to George or any elder, or Dave or Philip, or even just really anybody that's around you that's, that's one of our church members. They'd be happy to talk to you. This is the word of the Lord. It tells us how to be eternally happy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Help us to love your word and to treasure your word. Help, it to help, help, help us to love and cherish Christ so that we might find joy and happiness and bliss in him. And may our lives be a light into this world. May people see that we are blessed of God because of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.